Welcome everyone to Plugged and Unplanned and it's Tony Nash, the CEO of Booktopia, back with you again with another author, Alicia Mackay. And she has a book called You Don't Need an MBA and it's subtitled um, Leadership Lessons That Cut Through the Crap. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me. It's great that you're here. Now, uh, as I was just saying before we entered into the show, this is uh, a book close to my heart, having um, got 56% in my HSC, uh, scraped into uni where I mastered in Space Invaders and Snooker and failed in accounting and economics and dropped out and became the male boy at the NRMA back in 1981. So and not only do I not have a degree, um, but I also don't have an MBA. So um, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, your collective wisdom and and welcome to the show. Let's get stuck into it. Um, anything from the outset that uh, when you think about the book and what you've what you've written for people like myself who perhaps are sitting there in a pre-leadership role um, or wanting to start their own business and and they've got that trepidation of of uh, getting and getting stuck in what what are your opening thoughts well I think if we reflect on your personal experience there Tony the advantage that you had is that there wasn't things you needed to unlearn in order to take on your mantle as a leader in your life or in your business so what tends to happen in the traditional trajectory of development is that we we become a subject matter or a technical expert in something, engineering, science, business, marketing, whatever that is. And we're progressively promoted on the basis of the fact we're really good at that thing we do. Over time, they give us other people who do that thing and tell us to make sure that they're good at it. And, you know, if we play our cards right, we eventually end up at the top table. Now, all of a sudden, when we get there, the ground is pulled, or well, the carpet's pulled out from under us, sort of without warning. And all of a sudden, what we're supposed to be able to do is do things like make really good decisions and take people on these change journeys and know what's going on in our industry. But those weren't the things that we've been trained in. They weren't the things that we've been rewarded for or promoted for. And so they're not the things we've invested in. Now, when you've done the traditional trajectory and you've supplemented that with really advanced technical knowledge you know if you do an MBA you're going to learn how to optimize a supply chain and how to balance a balance sheet and all that good stuff once you get to the top and you realize none of that stuff is actually what your job is and that your job is actually knowing what on earth is going on out there and how you guys are going to stay ahead of that and keep the business afloat and keep people happy it's kind of a bit of a trick isn't it and so all of a sudden you have to unlearn that and some leaders don't some leaders try to do both they try to bolt it on. And they're the people that you find who are taking work home at night because they don't have any time for their real work during the day. And they're making their people's lives a living hell because while they're no longer on the tools, they think they have enough information to tell the people who are what to do. They're meddling, they're exhausted. And they need to unlearn those behaviours if they want to be effective at the strategic level. So the people who've done things the way you've done them, Tony, and gone, oh, I'm actually going to work out how things work in the first place and develop those capabilities as I go, you've kind of got a bit of an inside track there. Very interesting. There's so many questions that are popping out as you're talking, so I don't know how I can organise my brain here. Um, do you think from your experience, let's, let's actually talk about your experience. So uh, just tell everyone the background and why you have been... Um, bestowed upon this knowledge to share with us today what have you done to 
give us these insights? Well, it's an interesting one because I guess in uh, the spirit of the book, I'm not going to say, well, I've done a PhD in leadership development, which has taken me seven years because I haven't. And so I come from a background that is very, very much the bootstrappy story. So I was a foster kid and I was a teen mum. So I had my first daughter when I was 16, dropped out of high school. Um, I did go to university and going to university for me changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. And not because of the knowledge that I memorized necessarily, but it really opened my eyes to the world in ways that I didn't know it existed. Jobs that I didn't know were possible, ways that people lived that completely broke my bubble open. But I didn't actually get the university entrance qualification in New Zealand because I dropped out of high school. So I had to sweet talk my way in, which I don't think I'd get away with now, but at the time I was able to convince them I was smart enough to just let me in and they did. Uh, and so I um, I did a policy degree and I also did um, communications and I did that postgraduate as well and lasted post-university, I think about four years in a traditional job. So I went to work in local government and I worked on policies and annual plans and strategies and that kind of thing. And, and I did that with a couple of kids in tow. So I wasn't your average 22-year-old. I had a five-year-old and a nine-month-old baby at home when I kicked off. Which, if you could imagine, um, you know, the sort of councillors I worked with, I was working in local government, were, you know, very well-respected old farmers in the district. And the prospect of having this um, young woman coming in and telling them what to do with all their kids at home was a bit of a laugh. Um, so I lasted a few years in a job and I was pretty frustrated pretty quickly uh, with what the limitations of that were for me. I was so used to managing my own time and finding a smarter way to do things because I had to with kids at home and, and studying that the sit down from eight till five doesn't matter what you do as long as you're there thing just kind of didn't make any sense to me uh, so I left that and I started the first iteration of my consulting practice when I was 25 uh, which at the time was a bit of a jump my husband was on apprentice wages he was a builder uh, we had two kids and a mortgage to pay and I had no idea whether I could do it but um I think what's interesting about coming from a background where you don't have a lot of safety or comfort or security, and you know, I didn't have a home to go to, I didn't have um, a mum or a dad to go to, you get a certain level of comfort with risk that I think can be quite useful from an entrepreneurial perspective. I was okay with taking big leaps. I, I didn't expect to feel safe. So I, would, I knew that anything I wanted to do in my life, I was just going to, have to back myself and go for it because that's the only way I'd gotten anywhere before. And that was quite useful actually. And, and having the bravado and the stupidity and naivety to just crack into a business at 25. Uh, so I started off kind of doing, you know, what I'd been doing at work, which is what most people do. Your last employer is usually your first client and, and was doing sort of policy and, and business case type work. Uh, and I realized um, probably a couple of years in that the bit I liked the most wasn't writing the big long reports that no one read, but it was the, the time with people. It was the workshopping and the planning and the strategizing and the discussing. So um, I went pretty hard on, um, on that side of my business for a while. And I think it's useful to say in that, I mean, this isn't a business podcast, it's a book one, but it is useful, I think, to tear the veil a bit on that process because I think when we tell these stories we kind of gloss over all the bumps and we go and my business went from strength to strength and off I went and actually the reality is when people ring me and say Alicia how do I get into the sort of work you're doing I'm like you know what I did I knocked on a lot of doors 
I drank a lot of coffee, I suffered a lot of rejections, I worked for free with people who were doing things that I wanted to do to see how they did it, then worked out how to do it better and sell that to someone else. You know, it was it was hard going. And there was a lot of months where I wasn't sure if we could eat that month, you know, uh, but we did. And so I kind of just did things my way because that's how I am. Um, and sweet talked my way into enough government agencies and companies that I started doing strategy workshops um, and strategic planning in those environments rather than um, in a traditional government job and um, and that was my first book so I wrote a book called From Strategy to Action a guide to getting shit done in the public sector which was very much based around that um, strategic planning and strategy implementation but I think um, must have been three or four years ago that I started to realize that it wasn't Everything was all well and good while I was in the room, but after I would leave, a lot of these strategy processes were falling off. And so I wanted to figure out what that was about. And the more time I spent with leadership teams and chief executives and politicians, the more I started to see that there was a lot of really important skills that we need from people who are making those kind of decisions and leading people through that kind of change that they just didn't have. And it wasn't because they weren't great and they didn't work hard and they didn't try hard but it's because they hadn't learned to do things like make good decisions, build good relationships, see how things fit together, solve tricky problems. And so I'd go and the thing would die. So I think, all right, well, maybe I should figure out what's missing and why that's missing and learn how to teach people that stuff. And so that's what I've been doing for the last few years. And I wrote a book about it because as we well know, if you write a book, people believe you and then you can get more work. <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is true um quite often very true you're an expert you're it's your calling card um, yeah and it's a hard one because it's like i mean you're a self-proclaimed expert but also so is everybody and that it's kind of in the spirit of the book isn't it because it's like what makes you an expert in this well i don't know what makes you an expert in accounting you sat in a lecture hall for three years um it's that's not what makes you an expert you know when i left university i'd studied politics for four years and then i went into my first job in local government and went oh my god i don't know anything I don't know anything. I have the ability to think critically and, and look for information, which is what my degree left me with, which is really important. Um, but I don't know how to solve these problems. I have to learn that on the job now. And so your degree is your kind of price of entry, but it's not what makes you a good professional. And I think the same is true when it comes to knowledge and expertise. Education is so important, but I suspect, and I said to someone this morning actually over coffee, isn't it great that even now you can take someone's entire life's work that they've condensed for you and for $30 you can have it too. Like there is no better way to learn anything than to read a book, is there? That is, I totally agree with that. You would. Yeah. And um, it's interesting because at the moment I hear a bit, because we do a lot in the tertiary academic area um, world with selling textbooks and, yeah. and to TAFEs and colleges and so forth. And uh, micro-credentialing is a term that's coming up more and more where you just want to learn a very specific skill. Um, we do that on YouTube. If you want to learn how to barbecue something or yeah. how to sew something or what, whatever, you know, fix something like it's all out there. And this idea, and that's what a book is, it's micro-credentialing. Oh, I really like that. Yes, it is. Reading a book is micro-credentialing. I'm also a little bit, um, a little bit jaded about the idea of universities promoting micro-credentialing because it feels a little bit like sticking a jargon word on something to try and keep themselves relevant when it's like they know that if you need marketing expertise, you can Google it or watch YouTube video or hire someone on Fiverr in 10 minutes time to get that done. 
and to try and I guess maybe protect their value they're like no you can do that here it'll only cost you five grand and you can do it here and I think there's definitely a recognition that going and sitting somewhere for three or four years in a lecture hall and then trying to figure out how to apply it when you get out isn't the smartest way to learn new information but because universities are such massive bureaucratic behemoths it's really hard to turn that ship around quickly and so the cynical person in me would say that universities getting involved in micro-credentialing is kind of just them having a go at staying a little bit more relevant when actually we could pay 200 bucks and do a masterclass in it online and be done. <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? And, and it's the same in the book industry. I, when I got in in 2004, I couldn't believe how archaic it was. Yeah. I came from a technical background, um, recruitment, SEO, all these things. And I looked at, came into the book industry and I go, these guys ha have are stuck in one viewpoint looking out across the valley and can only see one thing whereas i had been traveling all around and seeing it from different angles thinking looking at it three-dimensionally but the 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 thing about uh universities um offering that um offering small courses micro courses it always comes down to one thing for me are you adding value yeah. and at the end of the day we can be cynics or we can we can be supporters it doesn't make any difference is that a better course and is it worth five thousand dollars versus the two hundred dollars yeah. and if the five thousand dollar one is then it will win uh, that's the that's the way that economics and and commerce and businesses it all that's the way it works so like what is the value proposition because for me university gave me um perspective and it gave me critical thinking and it built me relationships and that's hugely valuable and if that's what you want to do that for totally do that and make that part of the value proposition. You don't get that doing a self-led course on a video curriculum online. Um, but it's knowing what you're in. I guess my thing is you know what you're going in for. So if you are looking at something like an MBA or an executive MBA or whatever, because you think that those letters after your name at the end are going to get your promotion, that is not going to sustain you through three years of burnout when you are trying to cram 20 hours a week in between your family and your full-time job. If you're doing it because you've got genuine gaps in your knowledge and you're going to need that to take the next step or if you're doing that because you're switching industries or switching countries go for it if you're doing it because you've got a research interest that you think that is the right avenue or you really want to build a network in a, in a particular space definitely do that but know what you're doing it for rather than just having this kind of default because it's it's not a small thing it's 50 grand and it takes people years and you know i did a bunch of um bunch of market research interviews when I was designing the leadership program that goes with this book and one of the guys said to me he said Alicia I'm a triathlete he says I've run ultra marathons he said by the by the end of my MBA I'd put on 25 kilos because I wasn't prepared to let my family suffer I was in a senior role in my job I'm a high achiever so I had to ace this friggin MBA he said by the end of it I was so stressed out and unwell that it was my health that had gone on the back burner and so I hear stories like that and I'm like oh, it's got to be good to be worth that. And is that really what we, do we really want to be victim blaming people because we didn't teach them the skills they actually need? Do we really want to be expecting people to put themselves through that, to be in a position of service? Because that's what leadership is, right? It's a position of service. Why should people have to pay such a high personal cost for that? It's definitely come, having come from a recruitment background 14 years and having not had a degree, it never bothered me to hire people that, did, that only that never went to uni or didn't yeah. have an MBA, whatever it didn't like, oh, you didn't go to uni, no worries, come here. Whereas yeah. other companies had that as part of their um, you know, checklist, you need to have this, you need to have that. And so, oh, they've done an MBA well, 
like a degree, they had to stick it out. They, we, that's the kind of person who, who can do a lot and will work hard outside of hours um, on top of everything else. So if they can do that, then they should join us. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like what you're saying is, well, is it what components of that course are you actually taking with you? It's a friend of friend of my wife's and mine, her, um, her mother posted something a few years ago and she, she, I don't know her exact age. She could be 80 or in her late seventies. And it was like uh, just a, a one post, a small line. Once again, another day goes by when I haven't used algebra. <laughs> I use algebra all the time. I rebut that immediately. So do I. To my kids to, I'm like, mm, yes, and if that's how much the parking is and if we park here for that long, how much is it going to cost us and which park should we pick? Algebra is extremely useful. That's right. <laughs> and, and I use it, of course, running Booktopia. I use equations and algorithms and so forth. And I, I've written many of them. And so, but it's that one thing when you, when you are um, forced to to go to primary school, high school, to learn certain things, um, and then are you really making use of them? And if we if we're able to design education where you only um, educated people on the things they actually really needed to learn, um, how fast will we chunk that down? How could you do a uni degree in a year or an MBA in three months? Um, yeah, or conversely, can you do it over thirty years? And actually your education is, is what you're doing as you're going. Because I think the difference between people who've taken the kind of path you've taken, Tony, where you've learned as you've gone, versus people who've gone and sat at university for four years first, is you've kind of got either a dynamic environment or a static one. And the problem with learning in a static environment is that you learn in a way that encourages you to think about the world as a, as a model with controlled variables, right? And so academic essays are written on the basis of definitions and perfect circumstances and things that are unchanging. When you're learning on the job or when you're learning and applying as you go, we've got this dynamic environment and what the world's done over the last 20 or 30 years the pace that things shift at, the level of ambiguity that we're confronted with, the speed at which a skill loses its value, which now the half-life of a skill is less than five years. You know, if you learned to type 50 years ago, you could use that for 30 years. Now you learn to code and two years later, that language is gone, right? So the half-life is gone. So what we need is to be able to have this dynamic environment as the status quo, where we're teaching people that, hey, everything you know, is going to be relevant soon and so what you need to be really good at is being aware and focusing on what's changing in your environment and how you adapt to that and how you stay relevant and tapped in rather than being frustrated when things don't go as you plan because there's a certain academic mindset around controlled variables and static learning that encourages you to think well cool I'll come out and then I'll take this this approach that I know and I'll put it into the real world and it will work right whereas as you know in business I mean, everything's a best guess and 50% of the time it fails and you learn that pretty quick and go, cool, and you know where to take your risk and where not to and what to crack on with. If we're not learning in a way that encourages that kind of dynamism and shifting and agility, we're in a hiding to nothing before we get started. Yeah, yeah. So you, your book is really about um, leadership, right? And you've been Absolutely. working and you've been working with many organisations. Does it, because you've spent time in, in government, local government, probably state, international, like, is there is there one? Um, do you do you feel like the the best um, in a customer, the best reader of your book is a certain kind, like the, 
someone's going to hear this podcast or pick up the book in the shop and they're going to go, oh, I, I can, this is good for me or this is good for this person. Is you yeah. feel like there's a there's an audience that's going to really, it's going to really resonate with? Look, I haven't said this um, in the media before, Tony, but I'll tell you now, I kind of am allergic to the word leadership. I kind of hate it. And I think it's a bit of a jargony overused word that we've now stuck on everything. But the reason I've stuck it on is because it does sell books because everyone's into it now. But the fact of the matter is like a leader is just someone who um, who makes good shit happen, right? There's someone who are corralling resources or other people and care enough about something to make something happen. And so you can be a leader in your community. You can be a leader in your family. You can be a leader of of a cause that you care about, of a business, of an organisation. Leadership is really about having the capacity to get above the fray and think a little bit bigger about what needs to happen. And in my view, and I'm biased because I wrote the book, so I think everyone would benefit from it, but I genuinely think that if you are someone who, who just cares a bit more and doesn't just want to punch the, the time card and go home and to be technically expert, then I, I think it's useful because... What tends to happen, whether it's in government or whether it's in private sector, is we get rewarded for behaving a particular way. And so the, the framework in the book kind of says, well, if you want to be a more strategic leader, so you want to be someone who sees the big picture and makes things happen, there's kind of these four key areas that you need to have roughly in balance. And what tends to happen is you get rewarded for one or two of those in the course of your career and you get a bit unbalanced by the end. So we've got flexibility in the middle and you and I have covered that already because it's the most important one. And that's your core. You've got to have your core first. If you're not flexible and I mean, sub a word in for whatever's trendy at the moment, versatile, adaptive, agile, I don't care what the word is. Unless you're able to shift with the times, you'll run out of steam pretty quick. So that's at your core. But then we've got these four key areas, which in the book we say are sort of decision-making. So that's your strategic direction setting um, kind of, capability systems which is do you understand how things fit together and what the relationships are because what tends to get most big organizations um, cut them off at the knees is just silos it's just people immediately cluster together and then you've got a leadership team trying to put out fires and solve problems that don't actually see that there's only two problems that sit underneath all of them if only we could take the bigger view right so you've got decisions and systems then we've got performance, which is all about getting shit done, um, being focused, delegating to others, you know, making shit happen. And then we've got influence, which is the people stuff. How do you take people on a journey? How do you have a bigger impact? And what tends to happen is that you, um, you overbalance on one or two of those, depending on your background. So I was a policy analyst. I'm really good at, you know, sorting through options and setting direction um, and that strategic thinking. Great with decisions. I'm also really good at the performance stuff. I'm a, I'm a get shit done person. But when it comes to how to make people feel good, well, no one ever told me I had to do that. So I've had to learn that later. I'm way on balance on that, right? Or if you're a, a scientist or an engineer, you might be brilliant at the system stuff, seeing how everything fits together in a dynamic way, great at performance. But when it comes to zooming out and doing the big picture strategic thing, you've never had to do it. You've never been rewarded for it, so you don't have it. And so what we kind of want to be doing, whether you're in a low role, a management role, a senior role, is going, what are you already great at and being rewarded for and promoted for? And then actually, where do you need to shift the dial to? Because I like to think of our kind of development journeys as just this kind of never-ending seesaw where we're just shifting their balance from foot to foot as we go as soon as we're good at something we realize that we're shit at something else as soon as we focus on one thing we then have to shift the foot and that's cool it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us or that we don't have the right skills 
it's just the journey of being a person. And so I think if we realize that early, rather than over investing in whatever we've been rewarded for early on and then coming up short later, then I, I think we're good. So I don't think there is a point in your career where you're like, oh, this book isn't for me yet because I'm not a chief executive. It's more, hey, where do you lean now? And what do you need that's enduring that will sustain you right the way through? And how do you just keep aware? You know, call yourself on your own bullshit and just keep shifting the balance as you go. Mm. So when you, in your book, um, which unfortunately I haven't read, and is it? <gasps> I'm shocked and offended. Hold on, it? hold the phone, hold the phone. 11th Take of May came out. I'm, my book. I am, I'm in delay. I'm in lag here. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie, Tony. I'm disappointed. Yes. Well, <laughs> um, a lot of, a lot of these books are pre, like I'm de- dealing with pre order interviews. So um, we, we're in catch up mode here because it came okay, out. Okay, but I reckon mode. if um, if the book is the hack to the micro credential for the knowledge, then the podcast interview or the conversation has to be the micro credential for reading the book, right? Absolutely. This, yeah. is, this is like the signpost of, um, you know, you got to buy the book. Um, yeah. That's <laughs> what we're saying here. <laughs> Alicia Mackay, the author of You Don't Need an MBA, and you can get it on Booktopia, you can get it in any bookstore, you can get it wherever you want. It's it's out there already. Sellers. Selling like hotcakes. <laughs> so so when you think about those four things, it was interesting because the way that you uh, described them with the with the the direction, systems, um, influence, and the last one was oh, performance, which I reckon you're probably pretty good at actually, Tony. You strike me as a get shit done kind of dude. Yeah. So so what what came back in, in my memory, I don't know whether you've ever come across them, but those profiling where you, a disc profile, yeah. you, you heard about those? And it, it's like, so in your book, I'm <laughs> curious, do you get a chance to um, have the reader um, go through a process of questions or something to find out w- what your strengths and weaknesses are? So, oh, I'm really strong on that, but I didn't realize how, how short I was on influencing, for example. Yeah, totally. So as you move through the book, there's a bunch of prompts and questions. So at the end of each, the book is structured um, a little bit cheekily, like a curriculum. So we've got five modules and there's a cheat sheet at the end of every one. So if you just want to flick to the cheat sheet in each chapter, you'll be away. And it has exactly that, some prompt questions and some useful tips. And actually, this is a really good spot for me to plug. I have a quiz on my website where you do the quiz and it spits out at the end the one thing you should focus on the most. Mm, Um, So you can find that at notanmba.com, which is totally worth looking at. Um, But back to your point on the profiling, I think what I find quite problematic about that, whether it's your disc or your Myers-Briggs or whatever it is, um, is it kind of tends to pigeonhole people as being a certain way as though that's um, intuitive or inherent or inbuilt. And we're encouraged to learn to lead red auras if, or if we're an owl, hire an eagle, or I don't know, you know, there's a lot of them. And I f- that feels quite one-dimensional to me because I think when at the beginning of the book, I talk about these kind of three different paradigms of thinking about leadership over time and relate them and you'll like this one you'll like this analogy to the structure of a novel and so you've got your character centered story which is very much about you know you've got a central protagonist this is kind of your disc model you've got a central protagonist and they're facing challenges and it's all about them and if they're just better their life will be better and it's a very person-centered model and I think disc and Myers-Briggs and that kind of stuff fits under there which is who are you and then that's who you are now And then we've got this kind of plot 
centered um, models, which are more about, you know, the whodunits and the thrillers and solve the problem. And that's a very analytical way of thinking. And from a management and leadership point of view is when we would, we were like, if we just put contracts and performance measures on everything, everything will be fine. So if you want to be a good manager, figure out how to do KPIs. But there's a kind of a third approach to, um, to how we look at, at plot or at life. And it's what, um, and it's less commonly known, particularly in the fiction world, but it's the arena the arena model, which is, it's all about context. So rather than solving the, the whodunit or rather than the character development, this is the one where it's all about the environment and how people respond to it. It's kind of like your Survivor or your Gilligan's Island, right? And I reckon this is where we're at with leadership in the modern world of work, which is actually that it doesn't matter how good you are as a manager or how good your contracts are that's not going to help you when we have a pandemic hit or a change in legislation or a new competitor into the market or community expectations change because a new app comes out and now everybody just wants everything on an app, right? So this stuff that's just happening constantly, we don't have a lot of control over that. That's happening out there in the big wide world. And so unless we are attuned to our context and taking a more arena-centered view, we're going to really struggle. And so the only... Um, kind of typology that I've come across that I really like out of those discs and Myers-Briggs and all that kind of stuff is one that was developed in the States called the LVI, the Leadership Versatility Index. And that one actually focuses on how balanced you are and whether or not you've overbalanced or overinvested in one particular skill set and how to bring yourself back into balance. So rather than assessing someone as a D or an M or an ENT, whatever, it goes, actually, you're really strong here, but if you want to bring your graph more into the middle of the circle, then you need to get better at innovating or strategizing or, or whatever that is. And I like that a lot more because it's dynamic and it kind of says it's not about being the best one or a particular one. It's about being the best version of you by rounding out what you're missing. So it's a little bit cheeky in that response because I think strengths-based leadership became very trendy a while ago, which is just you find your strength and you get better and better at that. And I kind of go, well, you're already good at that. Why don't you get better at what you should at? So when you read the book, if you're already really awesome with people, don't even read that chapter. Go and read the one about getting shit done. I think one of the things um, from my perspective, and I want to ask you this on leadership because uh, not to say that um, this is correct or anyone's thought about it before, but it's kind of like um, a pyramid. So you, you either have like the pyramids in Egypt where you've got to make your way to the top or um, a pyramid that has, been, um, that has been hidden for a long time and you've got to scrape everything away. And, and for me, it was more, um, you know, I stood, on, I stood on the ground, which little did I know that I was at the top of the pyramid. And the more that I scraped away and, and did some archaeology, the pyramid got bigger and bigger. So yeah. that difference between um, the leader who started his own company, um, which I did 25 years ago, and kind of been working for myself and lots of mistakes and lots of experience, and versus the other ones, which you're dealing a lot with more in those corporations and government, um, where there there is already an organisation, is how do you how do you contemplate that? How do you consider that? Or how does how does the listener and I think about those two types of, of um, it's the same, it can be the same size pyramid in the end, 
but then different ways of, of kind of different journeys. Well, what I really like about that analogy, Tony, is the idea that, I mean, first of all, what even is the, the top, right? What is the top? What does it look like? How do you even know you want to get there? And what does that mean to you? I mean, I think we've kind of got these really archaic ideas in some sense about getting to the top of the organisational structure and what that means about you as a person or what your success is. And I think we're starting to turn a lot of that on its head now. And I think the pandemic's accelerated that because we've realised that if our work and our identity are too enmeshed, we're in trouble when there's a big shift there. And so defining ourselves on the basis of where we've got to at work is problematic at best. And I think the other problem with being, and look, I suspect you're quite a high achiever and I am too. And I work with a lot of clients who are, and they, do you know what? There's a reason they say it's tough at the top. It's bloody tough at the top. And I think a lot of people say they want to be a CEO or a prime minister or whatever, but they don't actually know what the day-to-day life of that is like. And if they did, they would not want that, right? It is bloody stressful up there. No matter how good you are at managing your time or keeping your shit together, you're spending half of your life out of your mind with stress, you know, and battling and overwhelmed and not finding time for the things you love. And so there's a piece at the beginning of the book around um, being clear on your personal values and what it is that you contribute to the world. Because if we think about that reconceptualizing of leadership again, if leadership is just doing good shit, making good shit happen, which I genuinely believe it is, I reckon everyone has their own capacity to contribute. And a little bit stronger than that, I also reckon that if you've got the ability to contribute, you bloody well should. I think social contract says if you've got a gift, you need to use it. And I think that's my um, that's probably my working class background talking, which is where I was like, shit, I'm smart. Most of the kids I'm hanging out with aren't smart. If I've got a chance of getting out of here, I bloody have to, right? I have to go and do good things. That's my responsibility. So I'm big on responsibility. But I think contributing to the rest of the world with what you've got lights you up and makes everybody else's life better. Isn't that the, isn't that your top? Regardless of where your pyramid is or where you're standing, as soon as we tag our success to being either better than others or reaching a particular pinnacle, we get there and we are immediately unsatisfied. We either stretch the goalpost out again or we have some kind of crisis of, oh, I got here and I'm still the same person. What's that line, um, everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> you know, you're still the same person. You just get paid more now and you've got more to do. And so I think there's something really important in there and we cover that in the flexibility thing. So in that flexibility core, I talk about awareness, agency and resilience as being the three components, which is essentially, do you know yourself and do you know what's going on outside of you? Do you have confidence in your own capacity to change your life and to change even when things are hard? And are you prepared to accept that terrible things are going to constantly happen and that you're going to thrive because of that, not in spite of it? And if you've got that attitude, then you've got that core of flexibility that will sustain pretty much anything. But unless you know yourself and you know what you care about and you're willing to just suffer along the way and bang along and try and figure it out, then you'll have a really hard time because instead you've got the, I want to be a lawyer or I want to be a CEO or I want to be an accountant. And it turns out those titles or that level in the organizational hierarchy very rarely on its own delivers you what you're looking for. Mm. Well, we could go on for quite a while here. The questions are <laughs> piling up and... I, I'm mindful how fast we've gone through this this podcast. So um, before we get to the end, I want to ask, because you've written the book, you know the content very well. Is there anything that um, I haven't 
um, brought up or you thought, oh, we should really talk about that um, thus well, far? Oh, that's a big question. Like, I think the, the thing I get asked the most questions about and that I've found myself talking about the most since I've been out there chatting about this book has been that flexibility thing. Like, I think the other four quadrants are really important and knowing how, what, it, what makes a good decision. Like, for example, people think a good decision is um, judged on its outcome and it isn't because you can't control that. You can't control the world around you. You know, a good decision is based on the process you use to make it, which may or may not pay off, right? Um, understanding how systems work and asking better questions, all of that stuff is really important. But unless you've got a strong core, it's like any exercise. You know, I, um, I trained for my first marathon a couple of years ago and I rolled down a hill and I stuffed my ankle really badly and it put me out for months. And I went to see the physio about it and essentially the physio said to me, look, it's a shame you fell down the hill, but something was going to go anyway, Alicia, whether it was your ankle or your knee or your hip, because you've got no core strength. So if you keep running the kind of case you're running without any core strength, you were going to hurt something. It just happened to be your ankle. And I think that same, you need core strength for exercise analogy is really important at work and in your life in general. It doesn't matter what you manage to build. It's a house of cards unless you've got a strong core. And that core is all about your own capacity to manage change. You know, I was, um, I said to you earlier that I had a pretty rough start and when I was at uni, I was a single mum and I had no money. And every week I'd sit down to do this budget, you know, and I'd be like, right, this is going to work perfectly. The dollars coming in are matching the dollars coming out. And then, oh, oh, but not this week because the, um, the car registration is due. But next week, the budget's going to work when everything settles down. You know, and I think some of us live our lives like that. We go, when everything settles down, when everything gets back to normal, when everything's okay, this will work. And actually, the key to surviving and thriving, whether you're a leader of a family or a business or whatever you are, is going, there is no normal. Everything's mad. And I'm cool with that. And we're going to do what we need to do no matter what. And I'm going to be okay. And we're going to be okay no matter what. And so that's probably my key message out of this one would be build your own capacity for change um, and just ask more questions. It's probably the other thing that I've said the most in these interviews. Like an MBA or a university education or a traditional PD fills you up with answers. Strategic leaders, successful leaders know that they don't know bugger all. They just ask really good questions. I agree because that is the key. That's the first slide of my keynote. Um, and that is the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. Oh, good line, Tony. Did you borrow that or is that yours? Mm, probably. Yeah, I probably um, copied it from somewhere else. But Well, you know, all, all ideas. But none of you. I like it, that. Thanks. There's a, you're writing it down. While you're I'm writing it down. I've got consuming quality yeah. of life quality of questions do you know what i'm going to use that on stage tony i'm going to say a really smart man you might know him ceo of booktopia once told me <laughs> please do please so there's no there's no copyright or ip on that one i'm sure marvelous so but the thing for me that you said a couple of things there which um in terms of me running the business um i want to share with with you and with those that are listening things come out of left field when you're in business and you've got to be able to say, bring it on. So if you're in business, if you're in a marriage, if you're in a relationship, if you're in a sports team, if you're whatever it is, if you're in politics, something will come out of left field. And for me, when that happens or when anything happens, 
in particular now with the pandemic, New South Wales is in lockdown, bring it on. Because what, so when you said, you said something before um, that was hard, something about you had a hard upbringing or something, right? I remember meeting a lady at the um, at book expo in America several years ago, and she ran Costco's book buying business, which is a $400 million you know, category for them. And, and I got introduced to her and she goes, oh, tough business, hard business uh, books, isn't it? I said, that's not a mindset that I subscribe to. Ooh. And so even though I was really in you know, the business was really tiny then, it's just like you're in one of the biggest book retailing businesses in America and you think like that. It's like, I do not think like that. And, and so um, I, I was a decathlete when I was younger uh, and that's the 10 events you do over two days. My worst event was the hurdles, the worst, because oh. was, they were too high. I wasn't flexible enough. I would always fall over. But it's about getting to the end. So in life, to me, it's just like, bring those hurdles on. You don't hit a hurdle. You don't look at it and go, oh, that's too high. Just crash through it, fall over, get up. If you make it to the finish line, you still got to the end. Just because someone got there 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 10 seconds, two seconds faster than you, it's irrelevant. And I think there's, there's a lot about, about that and about, for me, about leadership. It's about um, it's that, that you talk about the central core. It's, it's about being so grounded that when, when there's a typhoon and there's uh, something going on around you, just so centered and everyone is, is um, calmed by your sense of awareness and certainty. And, and that's just a choice. And the other thing I'll share with you is that there's a lot of things in these books, your book and many books, tons of books on leadership, tons of situations. Um, um, your company might put on a, a course and a, you know, Alicia might come in or, or you might be doing a, um, a first aid course. It's like in the moment, you can't, it doesn't work this way. You can't, you know, now I know, now what were those four things that Alicia said? She said, oh, I can't remember. It has to be automatic. Yeah. And so wherever you are today, that whole everywhere you go is that it's just whatever you've got access to at that time is the key so it's it's mostly whether you do your mba or whether you have a great conversation with someone or you have you spent three million dollars doing that and it was a complete disaster or and you learned so much it comes from your intuition it comes from that inner knowing because you're going to have you're going to draw on that and and i think in, in my in my marriage my wife and i We've been um, together for almost 10 years and married for, for six and a half. It's like, we've got better because yeah. arguments and disagreements and, and learning and, and speaking your mind and, and being honest and is, is all part of getting to better at what you're doing. So that's what I really encourage, what I, what I really encourage. So, so that's my... That's my spot on the uh, on the pulpit this morning. I love um, that, Tony, because the lessons are everywhere, aren't they? I mean, you said whether it's a conversation or something. You do, once you start looking for them, the lessons are bloody everywhere. Yeah. 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 And so the other the other thing about these um, podcasts, and you you said you brought up the thing about questions. Um, it started. There's been a bit of theme going. People have wanted to ask me. So um, here's a, a knowledge expert who's on the show now. Um, Booktopia uh, CEO, what's the kind of question that you would ask me that would perhaps give people an insight to what you're on about and what the book's about? 
Oh, wow. As soon as we got on and you said to me, oh, as soon as I came into the book industry, I realized things needed to be done differently. I had about 12 questions pop in. I was like, I'm going to try and get you later because I'm interested by that. What do you think has held back industries like yours that are, we need to think differently about? That's a, that's a spectacular question. <laughs> see how everyone who's listening, see how good she is at asking the quality of your question. Like, I'm going to answer it this way. So I, I did, um, I, I've done a lot of personal development um, courses. People who listen to my podcast will know I've talked about it a lot. And, and I put myself in, in the room to really work on things and work on myself. And I ended up um, doing the Business School of Entrepreneurs in Hawaii with Robert Kiyosaki in 1993. Awesome. Yeah. And so this is like four, five years before he wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, and so it was a 16-day a program and you started at seven in the morning in your running teams and you finished at two in the morning with your marketing teams and there was courses and people flown in all over the place and one of the guys uh, that was flown in was this uh, american called keith cunningham who was a texan and he was brought in to teach us about ne negotiation you know he was a texan and i'm going to talk to you about negotiation keith cunningham anyway he he in his in his sessions said you have to think in 3d you you got to think three-dimensionally and he you got to take a position so people talk about thinking outside the box no you're thinking outside the cube so so the box is two-dimensional two dimensions only exist in in theory and conversation there's no such thing as two dimension in reality there's three dimensions that's why when you talk about there's four things um, in your model. Um, Buckminster Fuller, um, who Robert Kiyosaki did a lot of training with, and I learned his principles, the smallest object in the universe is a tetrahedron with four, it's a four-sided pyramid. So the smallest system is, is four. And that's why when I look for something, I go, you've got three, but where's the fourth? Because you need four. And so, because that's three-dimensional. Anyway, after that um, session with Keith Cunningham, um, I, I, I was exhausted that evening and I went to sleep and I woke up, it must've been around 10, 30 or 11 o'clock at night. And it was in Hawaii, this, this, um, event. And, and so every, I walk outside middle of the night, I'd missed dinner. And there's these people next to the pool lying in deck chairs all in a row looking up. So what are you doing guys? It's the middle of the night. And they said, Oh, there's going to be a lunar eclipse. And I said, when? And they said, oh, in the next 10 minutes. And so I waited around. And all of a sudden, we only had one just in the last uh, couple of months, is that it was one of those linear eclipses where the Earth is between the sun and the moon. So the, the light refracts around the edge of the, of the Earth and, and casts a very red um, glow over, over, the, over the moon. And I'm, I'm, it's, so it starts to happen, and then it happens. And then there's this full lunar eclipse, right? And all of a sudden, it was like one of those um, magic eye um, images where you kind of have to defocus your eyes and it goes from a page into a three-dimensional picture and you can see, oh, there's, that, that's what I can see. So my, my eyes went very quickly from looking what historically for me and probably for most people, when you look at the white moon with the full moon, it just, it just looks like a disc up there with all yep. these other dots and stars around. But when it had this refracted light, all of a sudden it creates this, like you can see the foreground 
the moon and then the background really easy. And I, I could see it in 3D. And that was really important in terms of me understanding. So when I went into the book industry, or when I go into anything, I'm thinking three-dimensionally, I'm looking from under, I'm looking from on top. I'm look and the issue with the book industry, it's the way it is, it's the way it always was. And so it was cheap pickings for me to come in because they're probably Jeff Bezos the same. It's like, no one was seeing the way that you, everyone was kind of, everyone gets hyped up about the biggest new book. And you've gone through this in May, right? And you've, your, your other book, was that self-published, your first book? Or? The first one was self-published. I've yeah, got an so, publisher for this one. Right. So, so you had, you had to, you, you kind of, you went on, you were promoted. They're onto the next, the publisher's onto the next brightest big thing. They don't care about your bestsellers. They don't care about something that was written 20 years ago and sells a thousand units a month. They, are, they want to talk about the next big author and the next big thing. That's the way they're programmed. For me, I could see all these books selling over and over again. I was gladly adding them into stock. That's what I wanted to have. I wanted to have the perennial classics and things that, that were just kicking over and you, you, didn't, you didn't have to have fanfare. You just someone did a search on the internet. And, and so I think in anything, with whatever you're doing, you've got to be able to think in 3D. You've got to be able to look at it from various positions, from the supplier's position, from the printer's position, from the customer, from, from the market, from, from your teams. It's, that's, how, that's how you get um, operational leverage. That is such a good answer. See what other people aren't saying. Think 3D. Excellent. I enjoyed that. That's okay. Any others before we, we, we have to wrap up? Oh, what would be your one piece of advice for a young fledgling leader or entrepreneur or someone who wants, they're listening to this podcast, they're like, these are two interesting people. They've clearly done interesting things. I want to be a person that does interesting things. If they had one nugget to take away, one piece of advice, what would it be? To me, it's it's like um, the the intensity of focus. So in one of the workshops I did, and I cannot remember which one, it was a small one, probably 30 people. Uh, there was, um, at one point, they put us in the room and they split us into two group, groups. And one group was the cats and the other group was the dogs. And they had marked masking tape down the side of the room. And the cats were on one side of the room, the dogs were in the middle, and the cats had to get to the other side of the room. So you know, ready, set, go. So we, you know, we went across and some, some of us got through and others got caught and it was giggling and hugging and you know, various, in, you know, various outcomes that, that happened through that process. And so we, after that process, we went and, and huddled in with our, with our leader and they said, well, what did you learn about that? And people came up with things, well, this is what I found and this is what's going on. They said, all right, we're gonna do it again. Can you just try as hard as you can? So back in the room, the dogs were told the same and then ready, set, go. And more people got through, but some got caught because some people were trying harder to catch certain people or, um, or maybe they were focusing on the easier people to catch so they made sure that they caught them. Um, we went and debriefed again after that. And, and so, this, this uh, third time they said, all right, guys, here's the issue. Your kittens are on the other side of the room and you, you cats, if you do not get through, the dogs will eat the kittens. You have to get through, ready, set, go. And we pulverized them. <laughs> like even, you know, the, there was elder, elderly ladies in our, in our group. There was a mixture of people. I was quite young so I was, and I was doing sports. So it was, it was easy for me, but 
there was others who who had was it was quite a um, a shift for them to, to to have that intensity of focus but everybody got through so if you understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish if you if you really believe in it and you have focused on that because when i started booktopia people said to me what do you want to start a bookstore for and there's borders there's angus and robertson there's dimmicks there's amazon you know, you're too late now people say to me oh it's lucky you got in early <laughs> if i listen to all of those people then you know what what would have happened i i didn't i just focused i just started on a 10 dollar a day budget it was an evening project i was getting more success i was getting more sales i kept focusing on what i was doing and i just kept getting bigger and bigger so that's what i would say to someone who's thinking about it um is to is to continue and you got to understand booktopia was not my first business we had other businesses my brother and my brother-in-law and my sister and i and some of them didn't work and but we learned and we pivoted and we took from things that were working and didn't work and and brought that and finally when we got to booktopia there was um there was a lot of experience and but also we were um i could feel i could feel that there was um that there was um i actually felt um too that i loved that it was really hard the the publishers i mean the the in the beginning you got to understand like i would we get a data feed from a publisher and it would have for the title cat in the hat comma the i said guys what are you doing this looks stupid they said well that's what librarians want i said who gives a flying f about what librarians see looks stupid on the internet it took so long and and i realized that it was a very very there's 30 million active books like i could see it was a very big industry so it wasn't for the faint hearted and that really appealed to me because i felt like if you put in the put in the yards you can you can really accomplish a lot because it the barrier to entry was much higher than i uh, than than people thought i oh, can start an online store but it i could see there was a lot of things that you need to know software internet marketing which was our background both those things sales which was my background i didn't know books and i didn't know supply chain and logistics and we weren't that learned that along the way that was what the most um that was some of the the hallmarks of the opportunity that i that i could see i love that and so what i like about the two answers to those two questions tony is they kind of have these two really important harmonious messages the first being you know, when in doubt, zoom out. So get perspective, the importance of that perspective. And the other one being when, when it's time to get shit done, zoom all the way in. And it's that juxtaposition between that wide angle focus that you need to stay aware about what's going on and to see the things that people don't. But once you've got that locked in, the intensity of your focus, the laser focus is what determines whether or not you actually implement or whether you're the one day guy that has a dream. And so I just, I just love that. The perspective and the zooming in. What a beautiful juxtaposition. That is great. Alicia Mackay, thank you for coming on the show. Congrats on the book. Thank you so much for having you, me. You don't need an MBA. She's telling you, and that's the fact. Congrats. And we look forward to hearing a greater and greater success from you in the future. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free. 
and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.